might help if it was on. So sorry. So Hosea chapter 14, verses 1 through 8, New Living Translation. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for your sins have brought you down. Bring your confessions and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and graciously receive us so that we may offer you our praises. Assyria cannot save us, nor can our war horses. Never again will we say to the idols we have made, you are our gods. No, in you alone do the orphans find mercy. The Lord says, Then I will heal you of your faithlessness. My love will know no bounds, for my anger will be gone forever. I will be to Israel like a refreshing dew from heaven. Israel will become like the lily. It will send roots deep into the soil like the cedars in Lebanon. Its branches will spread out like beautiful olive trees, as fragrant as the cedars of Lebanon. My people will again live under my shade. They will flourish like grain and blossom like grape vines. They will be as fragrant as the wines of Lebanon. Oh, Israel, stay away from idols. I am the one who answers your prayers and cares for you. I am like a tree that is always green. All your fruit comes from me. The word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Miss Carrie Jane. Children are dismissed to the meadow. I think it's just my kids today, so have fun. I want to also thank the worship team for leading us in worship this morning. And I have to confess the the mistake on the confession slides is my fault. Um, I formatted those slides incorrectly. Um, so, Lord, deliver us from me and return to us Mike's row soon. Uh, because he's such a blessing that he does that for us week in and week out. And, uh, and I also want to recognize the sound team. There's a lot of folks that sit up there every week. Thank you. Uh, unsung heroes behind the scenes. It can be a bit of a stressful job. Um, and so thank you all for, uh, and I'm sure I'll screw it up as we go forward again. Um, if you have a Bible the, with you this morning, you can turn to the book of Hosea. That's where we'll be. Um, for those of you who may be guests, my name is Mike Traven. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church. Also want to extend my welcome to you there. Um, well, God wants to be married to us. Did you know that? God. God wants to marry us. 
The other day, my wife pointed out to me a story of a woman who married herself. She bought a ring, hired an officiant, and had a ceremony. And I don't tell this story to in any way belittle her or dunk on her. To be fair, it's actually the story of a journey of self-healing, of, of a woman learning to grow more comfortable body and soul as the person that God made her to be. But perhaps taking it to the step of, of marrying oneself might be a little bit too far. Learning to love ourselves correctly is something that God wants for all of us. But it becomes disordered when we make ourselves the center of that love. And again, I, I'm using her story as an image. I'm not saying that that is her motive, so please please hear me there. But God's desired end state of our lives as disciples, as followers of him, is, is a faithful union with him, a lifelong union in this life and a union with him throughout all of eternity. That we would grow in our capacity to love him more completely, to love ourselves correctly, to love others compassionately, so pervasively possessed by the Holy Spirit that we become accurate reflections of who Christ is. Perhaps you and I miss the mark when, when we think and act as though God does not need us or wouldn't desire to marry us. And so we put ourselves at the center of all things and believe perhaps that we have to take matters into our own hands, that we put our trust in lesser gods, as the Bible often refers to them. But the gospel, friends, is that the one true living God has, has not left us to trust in or rely on ourselves or anyone else. The good news is that we're united with God in Christ for eternity by the work that God did on the cross in the person of Christ to restore union and relationship with him. And in that assurance of salvation, he's freed us to join him in his work, creating and cultivating the kingdom of God here and now in this life and for eternity. His desire is, is to give us every desire of our heart. And his method is to keep calling out to us and meeting us in the places where we are in our own reality, to do the work of spiritual transformation so that ultimately our hearts are reflections of his heart, that our wants, our desires are his wants and desires. Well, we continue in our sermon series this morning on the minor prophets, an exploration through the, the 12 books of the Old Testament Lost my place there, forgive me. Twelve books of the Old Testament that we've entitled Live Justly, Love Mercy. Thank you to the folks upstairs for advancing the slide for me. Last Sunday, we introduced uh, the series to, to help us make sense of this portion of the scriptures. It's theologically rich in wisdom. It's unfortunately misnamed the minor prophets. They're not minor because of the importance of what they have to say. They're minor relative to the length of the book's vis-a-vis -vis the other prophets 
and the other scriptures. These collected writings are those of men who had a radical encounter with the presence of God and were then commissioned to go and speak on his behalf. Well, in these in their historical setting, these 12 books come from four different periods, as we talked about last week, from the 9th to the 4th century before Christ. There are four groupings of the minor prophets, each speaking to a different period in Israel's history, each focused on a different audience, each addressing specific issues that God had with the people of Israel. You see, in the year 931 B.C., the Davidic kingdom split into two. Historically, the first church split. That's where it all started. Into a northern kingdom we call Israel, a southern kingdom, the smaller kingdom known as Judah. Now, in the year 722, the northern kingdom would fall to the Assyrians. It was part of God's judgment being pronounced by these prophets. The southern kingdom would continue on 130 or so more years until the Babylonians showed up and finally captured Jerusalem and drug the rest of the Israelites off into captivity. These so-called minor prophets were preaching the prophetic word to the people of the northern and southern kingdom before these respective calamities. And they were calling Israel back to a place of covenant faithfulness, reminding them of, of their identity and who God was and what he had commissioned them to be as his people. And I think it's important to note that these words of the minor prophets really bring to a close what we call the Old Testament canon. And after the last prophet, Malachi, speaks, there's 400 years of silence in Israel. And the next prophet to come on the scene is John the baptizer, the one who was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the ultimate prophet, priest and king. Jesus Christ. And so we begin here today in our series in this book of Hosea, a 7th century minor prophet. He was a contemporary of Isaiah who prophesied in the southern kingdom around the same time frame. His name, Hosea, means help or deliverance or salvation. It's in Hebrew, Yeshua, which we translate as Jesus. It's an interesting similarity of the names. And this book of Hosea, 14 chapters long, is, is really a collection of 25 years of Hosea's preaching throughout the northern kingdom. It's in the form of poetry. And his sermons can be disjointed. The, the structure of the book is, is a collection of these things that, that the ancient writers have put back together. But each of these pieces of the story, if you will, are constructed around three elements. Accusation. What does the Lord have against Israel? What is the judgment he's pronouncing? And what is the hope for their salvation or redemption that he holds out to them? So as we look at this book of Hosea this morning, I, I want you to try and picture in your mind's eye two major divisions of this book. Chapters 1 through 3 form the first division Chapters 4 through 14 form the second. We'll be here till 3 o'clock. I hope you can track with me. 
But two major divisions of the book, and I'm going to try and look at this from the 30,000 foot level and draw you to some really important points that I think we need to bear in mind as New Testament Christians. Because again, the story of Old Testament Israel is the gospel. It is part of this story. It is part of our story being lived out through us as the church of Jesus Christ. Well, the first major division of the book of Hosea is chapters 1 through 3. And it really sets up all of the major themes of the rest of the book. In chapter 1, we, we see Hosea's unique call. In obedience to God, Hosea marries Gomer, a prostitute, a woman of adultery. And they produce children, three children, who the Lord himself names. And these names alone are prophetic. And I don't have time to go into it, so I would invite you to look at what it says there. But the nature of their marriage is a living analogy for Israel's unfaithfulness toward God. And it's a prophetic symbol of God's relationship to Israel and to us. Israel is unfaithful. But God is steadfast and loyal in his faithfulness. God is a loyal, loving God. And so in chapter 2, we see God pursuing his unfaithful people. In verses 19 to 20 of chapter 2 from the English Standard Version, I'm I'm mostly going to be speaking from the New Living Translation. It reads, and I will betroth you to me forever. This is God speaking. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. This verb, to know, reflects both the intimacy of a relationship and a mutual recognition of each member of this partnership. God wants to marry us. That's what he's saying right there. And then in chapter 3, we find this real-life enactment of the character of God. You see, Gomer, Hosea's wife, continues to be unfaithful. But God commands Hosea to go and to buy her back. And he does. And so in this first division of this book of Hosea, chapters 1 through 3, we see all the main ideas of the book. Unfaithfulness brings consequences. Unfaithfulness in in terms of rebellion and spiritual adultery. That is not living out our side of the partnership, this covenant relationship that God has made to us. We see God's covenant love and mercy always holds out hope and a new future. And we see how God has plans to save and restore his people. Which, which is our hope. And so the second major division of the book then is, is chapters 4 through 14, all the way through the end. God's relationship with his faithless people is, is described through accusations and warnings for Israel in the form of a covenant lawsuit that includes judgment speeches and calls for repentance. But most importantly for us and where we've anchored ourselves this morning in the scripture that Carrie Jane read is, is the promise of redemption and restoration. In the first subsection, beginning in chapter 4, 
the Lord brings his case against the people. And what does he say? He says, hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you saying, there is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. You make vows and break them. You'll kill and steal and commit adultery. There's violence everywhere, one murder after another. His case against them is that they lack spiritual knowledge. He says there's no faithfulness, there's no truth, there's no loyal love, there's no knowledge. This intimate relationship of of God's people and God, it's lacking. They're going through the motions, as it were. But yet, what is it full of? He says, false swearing and witness, lying, murder, adultery. What God's taking issue with is, is they're not upholding their end of the partnership. I find it interesting that when you look at the evidence that they're not holding the, the, the partnership, it's all these violations of the Ten Commandments. Murder, adultery, false witness. They've forgotten the law. In verse 6, we read, God says, My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. I refuse to recognize you as my priests. Since you have forgotten the laws of your God, I will forget to bless your children. You see, God's desire is, is covenant, loyal love. And a deep personal relationship with him. And the people are perishing, Hosea says, because they lack true knowledge of who God is. They may know the law. They may know all the rituals. They may be able to go through all the motions, but they don't really know God. It's a hollow marriage. And this knowledge of God is a major theological theme developed by Hosea. He uses this, this concept to show the extent of the relationship between God and his people. It's a reciprocal thing. It's not one way. But who do these scriptures say that, that God's taking issue with? It's the prophets and the priests and the kings. High offices in Old Testament Israel. He says that the priests, they're profiting from sacrifices. They're, they're not administering these sacrifices on behalf of the people. They're, they're going through the motions, but they're feeding themselves in the process. The prophets, not the ones we have recorded in Scripture, but the false prophets, they're seeking wisdom from the wrong sources, and they're, they're serving other gods. And God says throughout chapter 5 that Israel will be swept away in judgment for their failure to uphold their side of the partnership. But in chapter 6, we begin to see God making his appeal for true repentance. Looking at uh, chapter 6, verse 6, he says, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. You see, God demands from us God's deepest desire from us is loyal love toward him and toward others. The same way that one who is betrothed to another knows the other. This deep, 
intimate relationship. You see, the the key to knowing God is an obedience to this great commandment that we find in the New Testament. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. But God says, do it from the heart. You and I, the scriptures tell us, we look at appearances. We look at the outside, but God looks at the heart. So the key to knowing God is an obedience to the great commandment that comes from the heart. Well, are are you and I cultivating a knowledge of God like that? He says in chapter 4, verse 6, that people perish for lack of knowledge. It's not Bible memory verses spouting off 600 plus elements of the law from memory. Their lack of knowledge is they don't know the one true living God. Are you and I developing a knowledge of God like that? A, a deep, intimate friendship? One that's, that's marked by deep affection and compassion and selflessness and trust. Where we're free to express any feeling. Make any request. Confess any mistake because we know that God has our best interests at heart. It's one of the most important things, friends, that I can say to you this morning, that, that God meets us where we really are. You see, the good news of the gospel is that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the freedom and safety to be with God exactly where we find ourselves in our hearts, in the internal reality of our, our hearts, without fear, without deception. You see, God's not driven away by our sinfulness. He meets us in the midst of it. And if you don't believe that, there's example after example after example in the scriptures. When Jesus calls Peter to be a disciple, he's he's told Peter to cast his net on the other side of the boat. He hauls in a catch. I'm sorry. That he can't even handle. And he says, Lord... Go away from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Right? Zacchaeus, the tax collector, climbing a tree. Jesus calls him down. Let's go to your house and have a party with a bunch of other sinful people. The woman at the well. The woman caught in adultery. Matthew, the tax collector. The all sinful people who God called to himself showed them their hearts, and sent them off on a mission. God is not driven away by our sinfulness. He meets us in the midst of it. It's it's, it's one of the most important things I have to say to you this morning. God meets us in our reality where we really are. Well, in chapter 6 through 11, it's a second subsection of this second major division. It's God chastising the Israelites for their lack of brotherly love. It's it's, his accusation is about their rebellion and unfaithfulness that that manifests in how they treat others. And the Israelites, they've married themselves, as it were. And what's the result? Wickedness, 
and injustice. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 2. He says, I want to heal Israel, but its sins are too great. Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, is filled with liars. Thieves are on the inside and bandits are on the outside. Its people don't realize that I'm watching them. Their sinful deeds are all around them and I see them all. You see, they've become so self-absorbed and overcome by their sin. They've, they've rotted from the inside out. They're under threat from everybody outside the kingdom and they don't even recognize it. He says their passions are like a heated oven. They're driven by their lusts, their passion for power, their anger, and it manifests as murder and adultery. Israel looks not to God for their safety and security and belonging, but idols and alliances. He says the people are like a a half-turned loaf in some translations. Imagine a loaf of bread or a cake put in an oven that isn't flipped over. It's half-baked. A half-baked cake doesn't taste good. It might even make you sick to your stomach. They're so blinded by their own sin, they're weak, and they don't recognize it. They've turned everything and everyone, or they've turned to, rather, everything and everyone except God for their help. And they, in turn, have become helpless. He likens them to a silly, witless dove. In this context, the dove not being the symbol of peace and wholeness, but of silliness and vulnerability and senselessness. And he says that they cry out to God, but they do so with insincerity. They're still going through the motions, but their hearts aren't in it. He says in chapter 7, verse 14 through 16, he says, instead they sit on their couches and wail. They cut themselves, begging foreign gods for grain and new wine, and they turn away from me. I trained them and made them strong, yet now they plot evil against me. They look everywhere except the Most High. They are as useless as a crooked bow. This imagery of a a bent bow, a faulty weapon, useless and dangerous even. And, And then he goes on to say that the more that they succeed through their self-effort, the worse they become. In chapter 10, the first four verses, he says, How prosperous Israel is, a luxuriant vine loaded with fruit. But the richer the people get, the more pagan altars they build. The more bountiful their harvest, the more beautiful their sacred pillars. The hearts of the people are fickle, they're guilty and must be punished. The Lord will break down their altars and smash their sacred pillars. And then they will say, we have no king because we didn't fear the Lord. But even if we had a king, what could he do for us anyway? They spout empty words and make covenants they don't intend to keep. And so injustice springs up among them like poisonous weeds in a farmer's field. They're comfortable. They're complacent. We heard this term in the church, affluenza. That's what they have. And in spite of all that affluence and comfort, they're racked with fear. They're constantly trying to control everything, looking everywhere except to the one true God who can help them. You see, to have true knowledge and relationship 
with God, we've got to get to the heart level of our relationship with him. We've got to get to the heart level of our own selves. We've got to have heart level relationships with one another. That's why we're called to be the church. It's not just to come sit in here on Sunday and listen to me. And so beginning in chapter 11, God again reveals his heart for his people and his brokenheartedness over their lack of response. In 11 verses 1 to 2, he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. But the more I called to him, the farther he moved from me, offering sacrifices to the images of Baal and burning incense to idols. Now, many people may see a messianic reference here, um, but technically it's, it's more of a picture of Christ that we call a type. In Matthew uh, chapter 2, verse 15, we see a reference to this statement from Hosea that can be seen as an analogy. You see, Matthew's making this connection between Jesus and God's people of the promise. The calling of God's son or Israel in this verse began in the ages past, began from the beginning of the story of God's people, and it finds its completion in the coming of Christ that fulfills all the law and the prophets. And this is one way that all prophecy finds its fulfillment in Christ. Well, in the last three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, God levels a parallel charge against the southern kingdom of Judah. You see, Israel's fate is fixed. They're so rotten to the core They're not going to change, but that's not the case with the southern kingdom. There's still time to repent of sin and avoid the destruction. And what would it take for her to do this? Well, Hosea answers by by giving a review of the life and spiritual experiences of Israel and and Judah's common ancestor, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. I'll leave it to you to to read that in more depth. But, But this is the point in the story that continues to, I think, strike closer to home for you and for me. For, for what better describes the religion of Israel and Judah, and at times, unfortunately, even of ourselves, than attempts to use or manipulate God? It, it sounds harsh, but if we're being honest with ourselves, from time to time, we all do it. We plead with God for something that we desperately want, that we think God needs to do for us. You see, Israel and Judah thought that they were going through all the prescribed religious rituals and that would inevitably bind God to them and oblige God to bless them, to prosper them, to protect them. Regardless of the true spiritual state of their heart. And there are people who think like this today. For some people caught up in the prosperity gospel movement. This is the center of their theology. The thought that if one goes through the forms of religion, God will be obliged to prosper them. But for others, for most of us, it's more subtle and deceptive. And it's something that I, I, I say today because it's something we need to be on, on guard with. In what ways do we not love God with our heart, our soul, and our minds, and our strength. 
Where are we lacking faithfulness to obey him? But you see, the good news for us this morning is that there is hope in God's faithfulness to the partnership, his covenant loyal love. You see, in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness, in spite of our unfaithfulness, God is faithful. In chapter 12, God says, so now come back to your God, act with love and justice and always depend on him. And in the first three verses of chapter 14, I'm now reading from the English Standard Version. Sorry to jump around. It says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have, you have stumbled because of your iniquity. In this verse, he's saying, repent, turn about, and come back to God, to repent. And he says, take with you words, that is, confess, and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. This imagery of paying with bulls the vows of their lips indicates sincerity, the sincerity of heart that God wants for us. And what's its evidence? Praise and joy. They say, Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. It's this turning away of from their old ways or futile hopes and false beliefs. And they say, in you, the orphan finds mercy. And how does the love and mercy of God manifest for those who repent and believe and walk in faith? It's the scripture that we heard this morning. The Lord says, then I will heal you of your faithlessness. My love will know no bounds for my anger will be gone forever. I will be to Israel and to you, the New Testament church, like a refreshing dew from heaven. Israel will blossom like the lily. It will send roots deep into the soil like the cedars of Lebanon. Its branches will spread out like beautiful olive trees, as fragrant as the cedars of Lebanon. My people will again live under my shade. They'll flourish like grain and blossom like grapevines. They will be as fragrant as the vines of Lebanon. You see, friends, what this scripture tells us is that we will be like trees whose roots go deeper, whose branches extend wider. Does this sound familiar to us? Trinity Fellowship Church, if I had my slide act together, I'd put the slide of the vision right up there. So how do we respond? Well, last week I offered three responses to read and to pray and to walk. And I want to offer those again with a little more specificity to what we've talked about here in this book of Hosea. And I would start by saying, draw closer to God in this intimate relationship with him by reading the scriptures. Pick a passage that has spoken to you in your life and sit with the passage in the Lord and, and meditate on it and acknowledge that God is present with you in that. And then I would say to Take 10 minutes this week, once at least, two or three times if you're 
awesome overachiever and just sit quietly before the Lord. It's my personal biggest challenge to sit before the Lord and ask God to transform my heart. We, we don't necessarily like contemplative prayer, but I'm asking you, sit before the Lord. Find a, some sort of image that you can focus on, the cross, an icon that center your mind on the person and works of Jesus Christ and sit before the Lord quietly for 10 minutes and let your heart connect with his. And then walk. Do some selfless act of service this week. If you're married, maybe it's your spouse, keeping with the theme of Hosea. But some conscious, I'm sure all of us every week can point to something looking back and go, yeah, that was, that was a selfless act of service to others. But, but think about it. Be intentional about it. That's what I challenge you for this week. Well, I want to, I want to close with a quote from, uh, Dallas Willard from a book that the ladies are reading, um, Renovation of the Heart in Daily Practice, if I've got the title right, um, from chapter 14. Dallas Willard has has, uh, been deeply impactful to my own view of discipleship. And he says, death to self is the settled condition of life in the kingdom of God. Not married to ourself, but married to God. Death to self. The settled condition of life in the kingdom of God. He says, our ongoing life and lifelong transformation of Christians rests on this indispensable foundation and cannot proceed except insofar as that foundation is being laid and sustained. We must simply lose our lives. Those who have found their life shall lose it, Jesus said, while those who have lost their life for my sake shall find it. Our survival cannot be our ultimate point of reference in our world. We must not treat ourselves as God. This selfless life enables us to do for the first time what we want to do. Be truthful, transparent, helpful, and sacrificially loving with joy. Our lives are then caught up with God's life, a way of life and peace. Because we live from God. Brothers and sisters, may you and I turn back to God where we must And walk with him in covenant faithfulness. For God's steadfast, loyal love promises us redemption and restoration for those who trust in him. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Well, eternal Father, strong to save. Father, we just give you such great praise that you are faithful even when we're not. That, Lord, that you're faithful to meet us right where we really are. Father, we pray that through your word, through the exhortation of Christian brothers and sisters, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would continue to reveal to us our hearts, the ways that you're calling us to grow ever greater into the likeness of your son. And Lord, give us a spiritual awareness of those around us that we may 
be able to walk in your ways, loving you completely, seeing ourselves correctly, and loving others compassionately. And we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let us stand together.